Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, we have a lot in store for you. It's going to be a great episode. I'm going to kick things off with a discussion of whether or not healthy people should be allowed access to investigational vaccines as phase three clinical trials are ongoing. This is an idea that was first floated on the internet, where all great original ideas are first floated. Next, I have a recap on the Adora study. This is a study that there have been many industry-sponsored debates about conceding that it is a great study. So I'm going to take another crack at explaining the problems of Adora. Then I'm joined via Zoom by Audrey Tran for questions from a medical student. You won't want to miss this far-reaching discussion. And last, we have the new segment, Journal Club with a Fellow. I'm joined by Dr. Kareen Tawaji, and she's going to take us through an article, Atezolizumab and Bevacizumab in Hepatocellular Carcinoma against Serafinib. And you won't want to miss this discussion. This is the Embrave 150 discussion. So stay tuned. And a quick note, I promised that I would talk about a precision oncology study, but this episode got too full, so I got to talk about that next week. So stay tuned for that. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I really don't understand what's going on on Twitter and COVID-19. The last few days have seen a flurry of interest around a terrible idea. And that terrible idea is... While the phase three randomized control trial for Moderna's vaccine goes on, and ostensibly several other Canada vaccines which are nearing the starting point of a phase three study, while those phase three studies go on, we ought to, we ought to allow people who are interested in receiving the vaccine that's past phase one testing, but has not yet proven safety and efficacy in phase three testing, in an off-protocol use. And the people who have promoted this have used confusing language like expanded access or compassionate use, language that I don't think they fully understand the regulatory implications of. But let's put that aside. Let's just say their proposal is simple. While the randomized trial is ongoing, we ought to permit other people to gain access to the vaccine. Well, that's a take, a hot take, put out in a blog post on Forbes and then on Twitter, amplified and mega amplified because, you know, people who don't know anything about vaccine or drug approval would be quick to think that, boy, wouldn't I want to get a shot? Wouldn't that be lovely? And they're eager to amplify it. But it's a very misguided thing to amplify because there's a million problems with this. So first, let me just talk about what I think the sort of the key problems are with this proposal. One, You know, as Canada vaccines are manufactured and built up in increased supply, the most prudent thing to do with that limited supply, that supply you have in hand, 
is to administer it as rapidly as possible in a randomized fashion. When you want to know whether or not something works, there are a few factors that affect the speed with which you get that result. One factor is the event rate. How widespread is COVID transmission occurring? And if you go into places that are hotter than places that are cooler, your vaccine trial is going to give you a result faster. That's one. Two, the effect size of the vaccine. The bigger the effect size, the faster you're going to get a result. A vaccine that absolutely eliminates all cases of COVID is going to have a signal that's shown rather rapidly. A vaccine with a 5% reduction, it's going to take a hell of a long time. So the efficacy of the vaccine, that's another factor that goes into it. And then the third factor is the rate with which you enroll people in the randomized trial, the enrollment rate. These are the three key factors in time to result in a phase three randomized control trial. One thing that I don't think these people fully understand is vaccines are not safe after a phase one study. Vaccines are safe after a phase four study, which is a population-based surveillance study that even vaccines that have passed phase three testing have been debuted on the market with intolerable phase four safety signals and have been revoked from the market. Vaccines are not safe with the sample size of a phase one study. Phase one studies do not prove safety. They prove MTD. They prove that the drug or product is not overwhelmingly toxic. That's all they prove. Safety is only understood in the context of efficacy and safe things are where the net harms do not outweigh the net benefits. Safety and efficacy can only be understood together. There is no perfectly safe compound unless you're talking about maybe homeopathy, but of course that's also going to be perfectly useless too. Okay. So that's, that's safety and efficacy that these people don't understand. Um, if you're making vaccine as it's being made, the absolute most prudent thing to do is to prioritize it for randomized distribution in hotspots, measuring the endpoint, which will give you the fastest time, the fastest result. And then the moment you know that it's positive, you can put every ounce of energy into cranking up that vaccine production. There are several Canada vaccines. There's no assurance that any of them are going to be positive. Some might be positive. Others might be negative. We don't know. So if you allow this proposal where people are getting off protocol vaccine, one, you're hampering the randomized trial because you're diverting the supply of the vaccine. Two, you're hampering the randomized trial because you're poisoning the equipoise that exists in the community. Some people who don't understand medical science, if given a choice between getting a sure thing vaccine off protocol or being randomized in a study, they're going to choose getting the sure thing vaccine and not enroll in the study. So you're poisoning the randomized control trial, which is essential to understand if the vaccine has a net benefit effects. The next thing is, what if the vaccine you give out is actually ineffective? You may have a large number of people. This is sort of in the hypothetical world that there's that we're just cranking out the supply and, and we have tons of extra supply beyond our randomized capabilities. And you start giving that out. People who get that potentially ineffective vaccine are going to feel as if they got a vaccine and they may change their behavior, which may in fact worsen a pandemic. That's a possibility. The other possibility is the one that they're getting off protocol might be the one that turns out to be ineffective. And thus later, you're going to have to give them a different one, but their appetite for getting a different one might be reduced. The other possibility is that there's some antibody enhancement. There's some deleterious effect of the vaccine and you actually worsen the situation. You don't know. Um, that's why we do clinical studies. We don't know. There, it's possible that the unpredictable may occur. Another possibility, the vaccine is either doesn't work or works with a 20% reduction. You know, it's actually a worthwhile vaccine. Maybe 20% is, is good in certain settings. I mean, it's better than 0% efficacy. You give it out widely and then three people in whom it was received off protocol have Guillain-Barre. Well, is that due to the vaccine? 
Is it not due to the vaccine? Is it the baseline level of Guillain-Barre or is it a higher level? What if one of them has ADEM? What if one of them gets really sick with some other malady? And in fact, this has occurred. Osama Bilal has a nice link that he tweeted, which was about a prior pandemic flu season where a vaccine was hastily manufactured and the vaccine died because people linked all sorts of maladies that occurred in the wake of the vaccine to the vaccine, which may or may not be attributable to the vaccine. And this is described at length in an article tweeted by Osama Bilal. But that's just, you know, one, one slice of history. The next question is, once you ascertain the vaccine is effective, are we going to just give it to volunteers? No, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to have to strategize and think with as we're ramping up supply, if say we can only have a billion doses in the next year and we're going to need multiple billion doses, who are the people that we should give it? How do we distribute the vaccine? How do we stop spreading infection? Do we give it to people exposed? Which communities, which populations do we target first? These are, these are serious public health questions. They're not the kind of question that is amenable to merely allowing the most vocal and ardent person who wants the vaccine to get the vaccine. That's not the right answer. I think that the potential for such a program to be abused by rich and well-connected people um, who ironically are in the communities that are the least decimated by COVID-19 is enormous. And this proposal will inherently exacerbate disparities if the vaccine were to be effective, but it might not even be effective. These criticisms were made by many, many people after reading these ridiculous tweets and blogs. Then one of the prime perpetrators of the amplification revised the proposal to say that what he actually meant was that we randomize the off-protocol use of the vaccine. If you're randomizing the off-protocol use of the vaccine, that's a non-idea. That's just running a larger randomized control trial. So I guess it's a stupid idea. It's that, you know, they say there's no such thing as stupid ideas, but there are some. There are some ideas that are stupid. This was a stupid idea. But five years ago, 10 years ago, a stupid idea like this would not be getting thousands and thousands of retweets and thousands and thousands of likes and circulated so widely. A stupid idea like this would would die quietly in a paper that no one's reading or some sort of scratching that no one's reading. And I guess what I want to say is that, you know, social media is super good at critically appraising new articles. It's super good at amplifying and clarifying and disseminating your work to a broad audience. But, you know, novel ideas like this are really best suited for a proper formulation, not an eight tweet thread about how it might occur, but a really fleshed out proposal for what you're saying and even submitting it to a journal so that at least you get three other people to say this isn't totally wackadoodle. Um, that it really is the better format for this. Somebody made an excellent point, which is that, you know, even though this discussion is off base, um, there are some legitimate questions about whether or not we could have an adaptive randomized vaccine trial. And I thought, yeah, absolutely. You could have continuously enrollment. You could have multiple candidate vaccines tested in a single trial, just like UK Stampede, which we think we've talked about on this podcast. Um, you could even bend the randomization ratio based on interim results, which there's so many Bayesians out there who'd be happy to talk you through. Um, all these sorts of strategies are good. But again, these are best fleshed out in a full-length article, and it will be well-published. You know, it's a timely and clever article. They're not meant for someone who has only a passing familiarity with drug approval to be tossing out on the internet. 
So I guess part of my concern here is that this is a bad idea that got, you know, massive amplification. The other part of my concern is that, you know, what is going on on social media? Why are so many people compelled to talk about things that are far beyond what they know or what they thought about? I mean, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there were many people who model pandemics who were rightly frustrated that the media was not including them in the discussion. They were included in the discussion. Now, here they are talking about hydroxychloroquine and dexamethasone. But since when does their pandemic modeling experience translate into judging the efficacy of therapies tested in randomized controlled trials? I think it doesn't. So, you know, they've shown a bit of hypocrisy where initially they felt slighted because their expertise was not included in a broader discussion. Now we are past the moment where people are interested in their expertise, but they desire to cling to be part of the discussion, and thus they want to expand their expertise, which is ironically the thing they faulted others in the beginning. So it's a it's a grand hypocrisy. There are entire Twitter accounts of people who know nothing about anything, who just say this is a COVID account. They may have a PhD in an irrelevant subject. They may have, you know, some passing scientific credentials. They may have once used the restroom at Harvard just to say that, you know, spent time at Harvard on their Twitter profile. I mean, this is this is really ridiculous. And 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 I think the audience has very little ability to discern who actually knows anything versus who knows absolutely nothing on this topic. And I don't even know what their motivation is. I honestly am puzzled because they're not selling any products. They're not um you know, they don't have any real line of work they're drawing attention to. They don't have a long publication record that they're drawing attention to. They don't have, in many cases, they don't even have academic careers. Um, I don't understand what's the motivation. They they get a couple of interviews on these god-awful um, cable TV shows that, to be honest, very few people watch those cable TV shows. They're not what they used to be. Television is not the same media it used to be. And to go on TV no one will remember you were ever on it in one year. They'll never remember. No one will No one will remember you were quoted in a New York Times story, a Time magazine in six months. They'll never remember. No one will remember you went on TV in one year. Nobody will remember you. They won't think that you helped the pandemic. They won't think that you're a good communicator. They won't think about you ever again. That's not to say that there aren't some people who do do a good service of communicating things, I think, clearly and effectively. Some people do. But I'm just saying that if you are not someone who understands what you're talking about, and yet you jockey so hard to be this person to communicate to the public without understanding things substantively. Um, I don't know what's in it for you, honestly. You're not selling any products. You're not going to get any money. You're certainly not going to get any um, durable reputation or fame. You're going to get this illusory bump in your follower count and on some television shows um, that few people are watching. I mean, I just think that that's really, really silly. And the best thing you should do is just shut up. Um, you should just stay quiet. Um, you know, we we should think about what we're really savvy at talking about. I mean, my interest has always been for at least a decade, the appraisal, the rigorous appraisal of medical products that are put into ingested by people. That's what I spend my time thinking about. Um, and when we were talking about modeling, uh, and you know, I, I did my best to maximally keep quiet, although I also read a great deal about them in the process. And I think that that I and many others who were really on the therapeutic side, we were reticent to comment about models that we were not routinely making, even if 
the construct of some of those models in retrospect turned out to be grievously in error. I call this Twitter COVID opportunism. Scientists with only a passing affiliation with ID, pandemic response, drug approval, drug trials, vaccine development, vaccine trials, feel compelled to build a Twitter brand talking about COVID. Now, somebody pointed out that, you know, COVID hits so many dimensions of our lives. You know, we shouldn't really be exclusionary in who can talk about it. And I'm saying, absolutely not. You know, I, I wrote a commentary called It's a Supernova in Medical History. We need historians and sociologists and all these people brought to the table. But what we don't need them is we don't need the historian to be telling me how drugs should be approved. We don't need the sociologist to be talking about the modeling. We need them to talk about what the expertise they have. But that's not what's happening on social media. What's happening is people are starting their little Twitter brand by talking about the little sliver they know a little bit of something about. And then the moment that the zeitgeist moves away from their sliver, they do their very best to read CNN the night before so they can regurgitate news stories and talk about things they don't know anything about. And the problem with talking about something you don't know anything about is you just amplify a canonical message. You don't actually inject any original thinking or original dialogue. In fact, that's one of the biggest problems with oncology podcasts that I have discovered several new ones and I've been listening to. And some of them are literally reading the abstracts of the articles in the major journals. That's not a service. I'm sorry. If you want to run an oncology podcast and you're just going to say, oh, new article out in JCO, the JCO article says that adverse events occur frequently in people with um, who are exposed to pembrolizumab. But if you retreat them, uh, it's actually many of them can stay on it. OK, uh, th that that's not uh, an analysis. I mean, I haven't looked through that paper yet, but. When I listen to this this terrible summary of it, my first thought is is that um, you know very likely there are patients whom doctors are unwilling to rechallenge, and patients in whom doctors are willing to rechallenge with checkpoint inhibitors. The ones we're unwilling to challenge are the ones in whom we think the adverse event was really attributable to the drug and really bad. And the ones we are willing to rechallenge, probably the ones we think, well, it might have been related, might not have been, and it probably wasn't that bad. And when you add that bias in a confounding by indication retrospective data set, you should not be surprised that of the people in whom you rechallenged, it was tolerated well in two out of three or something like that or whatever it was in this silly summary that I listened to. But the real question is whether or not if you mandated or took away from that paper the lesson that you ought to more often rechallenge, which is the causal question we care about, if in fact you will do good or if in fact you will be knee deep in AEs because you're going to rechallenge people who were not those rechallenged in the retrospective study. But the discussion of the this article does not include people who will even think about the article to that for one step, just one step of thinking. And if you're not going to do one step of thinking, you're not going to do one step. You don't even want to do the one step. If you're not going to do that, just keep quiet. You don't have to talk. I, I just want listeners to know that I've done like seven takes to try to put a more polite word in what I think people should do. Um, in this situation. So that's a, a slide. So if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to actually invest your mental energy in reading it and curating it and giving us your take on it, then you shouldn't just regurgitate it. And if you want to just be this regurgitation artist and create a show called Oncology Regurgitation, we regurgitate abstracts, or COVID regurgitation, we just regurgitate news stories on COVID, you're not a COVID expert. You're not doing a public service. You're creating a brand that I think, no, I meant to talk about this a little bit. This brand is the 
most foolish brand to create. Someday COVID is going to be in the rearview mirror. Even if it's an endemic virus, it's going to be in the rearview mirror because people aren't going to talk about it all the time. And interest in it is going to dissipate. And so two years from now, you build your Twitter brand on being the person talking about COVID. And you know what? People are going to be talking about the next thing. And that next thing might be blood-based cancer screening. It might be, I don't know, some tracker that you put in your nose and tells you everything about your thoughts. It's going to be something different. And these people, I assume, are going to try to pivot yet again and take their already stretched skill set and apply it to some space where they really don't know anything about and try to continue their brand. But I think it's going to be even more and more obvious that this is a disingenuous brand and this person adds no insight and they're just regurgitating CNN stories to you. So why the hell are you following them and not just reading the CNN article yourself? I think that's going to be evident. So I think this brand has no legs. It has no purpose to the brand. You're creating a brand that's headed like a lemming for a cliff. It's going to be falling off that cliff the moment people lose interest in this topic, which they will. It's fine to create your brand. I mean, I've done, you know, I've been an advocate for that on social media, but the brand has to be like the thing that you're going to be studying and talking about and offering novel insights for like your duration of your career. At least if you want to purport to use your academic credentials as the reason why people ought to listen to you, it ought to be because you're offering novel insights. So anyway, so, you know, I've been reading, I've been listening to some more oncology podcasts and every time they summarize a paper and the person reveals, you know, even when you summarize a paper in the abstract, if you have spent any time reading articles or praising articles, you'll know that there are all these pitfalls you could easily point out. They don't even mention that. I don't think they understand that. Um, It's not a service. It doesn't help anybody. I mean, you know. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. The listeners will decide. But, you know, plenary session, that's what we try to do. We try to give you the opinion of somebody. You know, it has. we have a new disclaimer now. The opinions expressed on the show are those of whoever said it. That's the new motto. And it's really true because it's not the opinion of CNN packaged through the filter of somebody who doesn't know anything about vaccine approvals. So this vaccine approval fiasco, a manufactured idea on social media gained a lot of traction by being tweeted by by all these people out there who are ill-informed but desperate for for something really a disservice really sort of an embarrassment to the people who did it and it's just not necessary i mean it wasn't in response to anything it was literally coming up with something could have been fleshed out as a white paper in which case um you know people would have seen how ridiculous it was so on that positive note we're going to turn to the next segment The Adora study. I had to go back to Adora because there's been so much discussion and quote-unquote debates about Adora. Like all great debates, in many cases, the sponsor of the debate receives money from AstraZeneca. The moderator receives money from AstraZeneca and all the debaters receive money from AstraZeneca. Thus, you know the debate is fair and balanced when every single party is paid by AstraZeneca. I think these debates actually kind of... um, they are really kind of clever because if they're real fundamental concerns and you stage a debate that's so far to the we should do this side of the of the issue, um, you create this sort of false sense that the two sides are, well, we should wait for the overall survival or we should do this right away or we should wait for the overall survival and do this right away or do this right away without waiting. Um, extremely skewed adoptive positions. And that's what's espoused in these debates. These are debates that don't hit this issue as hard as it ought to be hit. And of course, when everyone is conflicted with the sponsor, it's sort of a pseudo debate. Um, It's like a primary debate. It's the primaries. 
It's the primaries of one political party, and there's not yet been a national election to debate the issues more broadly. So I, I followed some of these debates, and I thought that they were laughable. When both parties are paid by AstraZeneca, they don't even acknowledge that patient groups are involved, patients are quoted, and they are also receiving funding from AstraZeneca. I mean, it's kind of a despicable, despicable situation, and yet we have to tolerate it or people don't know any better. So, you know, this is the Adora study that I want to just briefly point out the substantive flaws of. A randomized trial in 1B through 3A, non-small cell lung cancer, which is activating EGFR mutations, randomized to after surgical therapy, the receipt of osimertinib versus placebo. And you could have chemotherapy, but you didn't have to. And the rates of chemotherapy appear to be extremely poor and, and beneath the standard of care. There are some problems with this study. We don't know them all because the paper is not yet published, but we have a sense. One sense is that we shall see, we shall see, but Let's talk about staging. If you're running an adjuvant study, you sure better have staged people appropriately. And for people with two and three, it would be criminal not to do MRI brain and PET CT. If you only did a CT brain for a two or three patient, stage two or three patient, you're performing, that's criminal. That's beneath the US standard of care. Um, and why does that matter? If you're doing an adjuvant trial and you're the sponsoring company, you want the staging to be lousy. The worse the staging, the more occult metastatic disease you're going to enroll in your study. And guess what? We know that osimertinib is probably better than placebo if you have occult metastatic disease. And if you don't do adequate staging to look for metastatic disease, you very likely are including some occult metastatic disease. Inadequate staging, you cannot post hoc figure out that the trial still would have been positive were it not for whatever fraction has occult disease. You don't know what fraction has occult disease because you didn't stage them. And you don't know what percent of the contribution of the outcome is driven by treating occult metastatic disease, metastatic disease versus just not treating it. So inadequate staging is, is probably, we will see, but I have a, I have a strong feeling that's going to be a major problem. Another problem, if a patient had 3A lung cancer, those often go to interdisciplinary tumor boards and post-surgery, they receive some consolidative radiotherapy. And there's some data that suggests that that might have a benefit and we can talk about the limits of that data. But it might be the case, I hear, that this trial has a prohibition on that. And if it has a prohibition on that, that's a big problem because that's a prohibition on something that people think is the best thing you can do for patients, thus further increasing relapse rates needlessly in the control arm. The chemotherapy rate, we don't want a trial of osimertinib versus placebo in people who are being tricked to not get chemotherapy. And one way they might be deceived into that is to say, well, we have a trial that's a novel targeted drug or placebo. It's targeted just for your cancer, for your mutation. Um, but, you know, it, you could still get it after chemotherapy, but, you know, it's open right now and there's spots available right now and you don't want to miss it. That sort of attitude that could easily dissuade someone from chemotherapy. You want to max out chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, which is a, which is an intervention that has a durable DFS benefit before you start adding on TKIs, which may only delay the ultimate presentation of microscopic disease. 
The other question that will come out is, is this a curative treatment or does this just delay inevitable recurrence? We already have this huge problem of when you give Aussie in the front line, you find yourself running low on options when those patients progress. Often, you're going to chemotherapy alone. And when giving the adjuvant setting, what are you going to be giving them in the metastatic setting? And don't say you're going to be giving them PD-1 antibodies because there's a big question mark next to that. You're going to be running out of options. And the real question is whether or not the routine upfront use to many people, some of whom are already cured, so they're just getting toxicity with no benefit, is is better than giving osimertinib upon metastatic relapse in the fraction of people who relapse. Next, what drugs are given upon metastatic presentation? I have a sneaking suspicion that this trial is going to be giving people who present in the control arm with metastatic disease gifitinib or erlotinib. If they're doing that, they're, this trial is, is not relevant for the people who are praising this trial. They have abandoned that strategy. The same doctor who's saying this is a practice-changing trial could easily be in a malpractice courtroom testifying, and they would say something like this, well, your honor, um, this oncologist didn't provide appropriate care. This was a stage two patient. The oncologist didn't get a brain MRI. The oncologist relied on a CT that was done for a different purpose a few weeks before. The oncologist didn't give the patient a brain MR, didn't give the patient a PET CT. The oncologist didn't place a referral for radiotherapy. There was no discussion of whether or not radiotherapy was indicated in 3A. For some reason, there was no adjuvant chemotherapy given, Your Honor. And then when the patient presented with metastatic disease, uh, the doctor gave gefitinib, um, even though, you know, in my practice and the practice of my peers, we switched to osimertinib um, for the last year. So... In other words, if the standard, if the control arm of the study is going to be considered malpractice and the PI would go to court and probably testify in a sort of a hypothetical case that that is beneath the available standard of care, how can they then justify this control arm as proof that this trial is successful? This trial will have an OS benefit. Uh, if you don't stage people appropriately and you don't give appropriate therapy upon progression, there's no doubt there'll be an OS benefit, but it will prove nothing. It'll prove nothing. Many of these debates say um, the OS benefit is the tiebreaker. It's only a tiebreaker if you run a correct study. If you run a lousy study that doesn't assess the question that actually matters, OS benefit later is not a is not a tiebreaker. If your control arm is essentially malpractice, then the trial is not a useful study. The real question is why are all the big names in the field praising this study? And they praise the hazard ratio. The the hazard ratio point estimate is point. One seven or something like that. They're like, I haven't seen a hazard ratio so good. It's a it's a hazard ratio that's exquisite for an endpoint that is not a measure of people living longer, or living better. Some people say, well, DFS is quality of life. No, quality of life is quality of life, and you can measure quality of life. You can power the trial for health related quality of life. And if the metastatic disease that you're averting is really symptomatic, devastating metastatic disease, you will see that in an improvement in health related quality of life. You didn't do that. Don't assume your surrogate measures quality of life when you can directly measure quality of life. That's just a classic, classic poor argument by people who don't understand basics of, of trials and, and trial design. And then the last thing is, you know, one of the arguments I heard was, well, you know, patients aren't looking for OS benefits. They're looking for things that keep us going to get, um, you know, just in case there's some new breakthrough therapy down the road. And that's why, you know, PFS and DFS are okay. I'm sorry, that is an incorrect argument. Just think about it. What is the prerequisite to receive some future wonderful therapy? Okay, let's just say sometime in the future, the doctors are going to come up with a magical curative therapy for this condition, hypothetically. Do I think it's going to happen for this cancer? 
I have my doubts, to be honest with you. But let's say that it is coming. It's coming for sure. What are the prerequisites to, ex to receiving this magical curative therapy? What are the prerequisites? Well, one, you have to be alive. So if you died before the therapy, you won't be able to get it. So that's true. Two, you have to have, you know, a reasonable functional status, a good performance status. But to be honest, if it's really so wonderful, they're going to bend the rules. They're going to give it to you with PSO4 if it's really so wonderful. And if you think if you think that won't happen, then I don't think you've followed what's been going on with the PD-1 and PD-L1 antibodies, okay? They'll give it to you if, if you know, even with a diminished functional status, if, it's, if they believe it's really, really good. And, and those are drugs that are not Lazarus drugs. But if it was a truly a Lazarus drug, yeah, they'd give it to you. So you have to be alive and have some baseline performance status. Those are the prerequisites. Does it matter how long your first progression was if the drug doesn't improve quality of life? No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. It, drugs that improve PFS without improving OS do not keep patients going longer to receive a magical therapy that does not yet exist. That is a fallacy. Drugs that improve OS keep people going longer to receive a magical therapy that does not exist. Not drugs that improve PFS, because if you improve PFS and don't improve OS, your window on the back end to get this magical cure is not any longer. And yet, this argument is repeated by so many people who presumably have an ounce of intelligence, but yet they have not even thought about this. For two seconds, it would take two seconds to think about this to realize that it is a fallacious argument. Who created the argument? I strongly suspect it was somebody in the industry marketing arm created the argument. And then the KOL, while buying some doctor lunch one day, whispered it into the doctor's ear. And the doctor repeated it and repeated it over and over because this doctor has no training in statistics or thinking clearly or epidemiology, et cetera, et cetera. So the real problem with Adora and these fake debates is that both sides are skewed heavily in one direction towards adoption of the therapy. There is no one participating in the debate not paid by AstraZeneca, and there's no one participating in the debate who's actually going to really this trial to bits. And that is a fake debate. And the best thing to do when there is controversy about your study is to stage a fake debate, because then both sides of the debate are terms you already agree with. It is literally a primary in a political election. You'd be happy with both sides because they're far to the right or far to the left of the other party. And that's what's going on here. And so Adora trial, when it comes out, you're going to have to look, what was the staging? If they allowed CT and not brain MRI, you should just rip that paper in half. If they allowed, if they did not mandate PET-CT in two and three, rip it in half. If when patients on the control arm presented with metastatic disease, they did not give osimertinib, rip it in half. If they ban radiotherapy in 3A, if they do not allow or potentially dissuade participants from chemotherapy, rip it in half. It, and then, you know, somebody said, oh, the hazard ratio is still 0.5 in 1B. Stop talking about hazard ratio, okay? The hazard ratio is the instantaneous probability of the event in one arm divided by the instantaneous probability of the event in the other arm. It is not a measure of the probability that you're gonna do better or live longer at any point in time and is not the measure of how much better you'll live longer or live better and whether or not the costs and the toxicity justify that magnitude of benefit. If you do not know what hazard ratio is, you should not say this is the most impressive hazard ratio. I do not think they know what hazard ratio is. I don't think they know how to use it. I don't think they know how to talk about it. And, and proof is that they're just so happy to get a 0.17. We've seen hazard ratios exquisitely low, typically with PSA in some of these prostate cancer trials. It often is lower than radiographic progression-free survival because you can generate a far more drastic difference in PSA that 
translates into a far less drastic benefit in radiographic PFS, which translates into an even less benefit in OS, which is actually, you know, surprise, surprise, the thing that actually matters to patients. If you took somebody with prostate cancer and did a an exchange blood transfusion, you'd get a hazard ratio of 0.0005 potentially for PSA. Just take all the blood out of him and put full exchange transfusion on this patient. You're going to lower, you're going to lower that hazard ratio, but you're not going to make him live longer, live better because a hazard ratio for an endpoint that doesn't actually matter is not a useful thing. So Adora, the real lesson of Adora is this is a scam. The scam is that multinational companies can perpetuate absolutely god-awful studies that don't inform our actual patients, and there is not a single person who has taken the oath of a doctor who's willing to stand up and say that this is unacceptable because they're all getting paid by AstraZeneca, participating in sham debates, and perpetuating the lower and lower standards. And then they go on on Twitter and they praise each other for congratulations on your lousy study that doesn't inform our practice and your lousy study, then your lousy study, and we all have drug approvals for lousy studies, and, we're, and we have $150 billion expenditure on cancer drugs. We're using them early, often, and continuous. Um, the drug companies are getting rich. At, we're getting a, a, a tiny pittance of the drug company's wealth in terms of personal payments, um, and, and our patients are, unfortunately, not being cured of lung cancer. They're not living longer substantively with lung cancer. The years of life lost are still gaping for somebody with lung cancer. They're not living longer for the magic cure. That's just some erroneous argument that was constructed by a marketing person that the KOL who's taking fistfuls of AstraZeneca money and putting in their pocket doesn't have the brain power to tease apart from a clearly fallacious statement and has no ability to decide whether or not that's true or false. This is the, the entire problematic ecosystem of oncology. This is the book Malignant. It's written to draw attention to this fact that the core structural failure is all of this. We have lousy trials and drugs that don't do what we think they do. We have false and inflated beliefs. We have hype rhetoric, and we have a financial system that would be considered outright corruption and fraud in any civilized nation in the world. And it is all tolerated. And people pat themselves on the back in stage fake debates and don't have the courage to have a real debate with run by a non somebody who actually is not paid by AstraZeneca as a moderator and somebody who's a panelist who's willing to rip this trial to bits. And we don't even have the trial yet. And yet, of course, it's already being hailed as a standard of care. If you did the right study, you staged everyone appropriately. You gave chemotherapy as much as you could give. If the interdisciplinary tumor board felt that radiation was indicated in 3A, you would give it. And you randomized patients with lung cancer to osimertinib or placebo. And for the patients getting placebo, you followed them closely. And at first sign of recurrent disease, we gave them osimertinib. I would be very confident that osimertinib does not improve overall survival and does not improve quality of life. I bet you're adding tons of toxicity and you're adding tons of market share for this drug and, and you're deteriorating quality of life of 100 people. The fraction that's already cured, they're just suffering a quality of life decrement. The fraction that has a delayed recurrence, um, they're not getting a quality of life benefit because often we, with really good follow-up, you can find recurrence very small. And osimertinib is, is well tolerated when you get in the metastatic setting. Um, so I, I, I think you're just getting the negative impact of more osimertinib early. And I bet there's a huge quality of life decrement in second and third line therapy if you get this in the adjuvant space because you've exhausted EGFR inhibition and you're going to be giving the patient chemotherapy and they're not going to be so happy about it when they do have declared disease. And so I bet if you did the right study, you would have no OS benefit and probably a net quality of life decrement if you measured it across the lifespan. 
That's the irony of this study, is that it's so misconstrued and so many people are getting their palms greased by this company that it's going to lead to the erroneous conclusion. I bet it would be the other way around. I don't know that for sure, of course, because they're never going to do the right study. Because why would we need to do the right study when there is no pressure from anybody in the system, when everyone is on the take from AstraZeneca? Why would we ever do the right study? And then... When we ask ourselves why cancer patients have such disgraceful treatment, and this is a disgrace. When you debut 71 consecutive drugs and the median improvement overall cell is two months, that is a disgrace for drug approval. When you're spending $150 billion global expenditure annually and the drugs that you're spending it on are marginal mediocre drugs that add one month in survival in idealized patient populations and maybe zero months in survival in the actual setting, that is a disgrace. That is a society that takes a massive amount of human capital and then they say, we're going to help cancer patients with it. And instead of actually helping cancer patients by providing nursing care and meals delivered to them and laundry service and things that would actually make somebody sick and dying with cancer have a better quality of life, we're going to pay for these horrible drugs that barely improve survival, even under idealized circumstance. And we're going to give that to you. And actually the cost of making the drug will be pennies and the profit margin will be just diverted to other people. And that's really what we're going to do. That's the system. And, 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 and that's what you see here. So Adora study, I think the, 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 that this is, this is not, these are not limitations that are, mm, okay, acknowledge limitations and then let's, let's just do it anyway. These are limitations that are damning. They're so damning. It's like catching someone doping in the Olympics. You got to strip them of the metal. And if you're not going to do it here, you're going to allow this and you're going to allow the next one to slide and the next one to slide. Then don't be surprised if in 20 years in oncology, the majority of cancer diagnoses are still death sentences. Um, yet, um, we are having global sales of $500 billion in cancer drugs. Um, and people aren't really living substantively longer, but we feel like we're living longer because scans are getting so advanced. We can find you have cancer five years before we otherwise would find it. And so you get that nice lead time bias. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. And so I think bad study bad study, poorly designed. And the failure are with the, you know, we can talk about the failures, but I actually don't blame the company that much. These are their incentives, the incentives that they, that they have, that they exist with. And they, uh, company's a tiger. And, and when the tiger, uh, uh, kills an animal and eats it, um, you can't blame the tiger. That's the tiger's motivation and tiger's goal. The failure, I think, are the regulators who have capitulated to the tiger. In fact, most of them are looking for jobs, working for the tiger someday. So of course they're not going to be too harsh. And we prove that in a BMJ paper. And the other failure are the academic, quote unquote, experts who surprisingly have no expertise in actually appraising trials, no expertise in actually thinking about how you would design the right study, no expertise in actually standing up for patients, no expertise in appropriate post-protocol therapy, no expertise in staging, um, conveniently no expertise when they're receiving payments. These are people who are doctors who, you know, did take an oath, and that oath does include some things that aren't... Um, this is the new modified Hippocratic Oath. You know, I promise to be an oncologist and I will always say that everything I do is in the best interest of patients. Um, however, I understand that for-profit companies um, wish to get drug products approved. And whenever possible, I swear to randomize patients to control arm regimens far beneath the care I would normally provide, care that I would blame the fellow or even testify as malpractice in a court of law. I will permit in a randomized study if it allows the company to make money. This I swear in front of my teacher the new modified Hippocratic Oath for an oncologist, um, as long as, of course, I'm receiving personal financial payments from the company. So on that positive note, we're going to turn to the next segment. Okay, I'm back in uh, plenary session, end of days bunker. 
joined via Google Meeting with Audrey Tran. Audrey is, of course, famous for questions from a medical student. <laughs> um, it's great to have you. Great that you're willing to do this by do this remotely so we can continue this great segment that everyone loves. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always it's always so much fun to chat and just kind of think about these things. Your segments are popular, uh, but um, really? I think they they get me into a little bit of trouble. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. The, uh, the I still get like every other day some somebody messaging me and they're like, "He doesn't think soft targets are as important as hard targets." And I'm like, "Oh my god, come on, let it go." <laughs> of course I don't, but I discussed it in the episode why I don't in one of our episodes, episode two dot thirty. You can listen there if you want to feel outraged. But today we're on to something new, Audrey. So what are we talking about today? Yeah. So today I was. Um, I was kind of going through, I feel like because we don't work in the office anymore, mm -hmm. I was like just going through some of the tweets and other things we've kind of discussed. And I, I found some really thought provoking tweets that I thought you could expand on, but it's something I kind of wanted more clarification. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was the topic of the fake pearls or the witnessing, I think, of yeah. pearls being formed in real time. And you have a tweet about this, I think, which people can look at, but ultimately some questions you posed were like, what motivates someone to, to say like, this is something you should be doing in clinical medicine? How does, how do these ideas perpetuate? Um, and how personally have you seen it developing either, um, in clinical practice or just kind of in, on social media and so on and so forth? Um, because ultimately, I guess to me, the underlying question for that is, um, the idea of credibility and authority, especially in times of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and like who, kind of this larger question, like who's reliable and who do we turn to in these times of uncertainty? That's a good question. So I guess, should we should we start with the, the Pearl discussion and then go yeah, to this? Let's maybe, yeah, maybe describe kind of what, what use, like what a, what that tweet was and then kind of what motivated you to kind of think about that. Yeah, okay. So I guess, um, you know, when whenever you do like, clerkships and clinical clerkships, like we all get people giving us pearls, um, uh, mm -hmm. things that they, a little tidbits of information they think are, you know, really, really good. And, you know, I just mentioned that there's a tidbit I got many years ago, which was when you do a thoracentesis, you shouldn't take off more than, you know, 1500 milliliters. Um, and the reason why is if you take off more, the patient will be at risk of re-expansion pulmonary edema. And I had heard that. And then, you know, there's so many different pearls I've encountered over the years. Um, another pearl I somebody told me was, you know, I washed my hands and I entered a room and um, I set up the kit for the central line, I, you know, and I got everything ready. And then um, I was about to put the sterile gloves on before doing sort of the final steps before I started the procedure. And then somebody said, hey, stop right there. You got to wash your hands. And I said, but I just washed my hands when I entered the room. And they're like, well, you have to wash your hands yet again before you put on the sterile gloves. And I said, what's the reason for that? And they're like, oh, it's in, um, it's part of the checklist guidelines. I was like, okay, okay. So that's another pearl. And then, you know, sometimes you're curious and, and you start to think to yourself, you know, this is an impermeable sterile glove. And I never touch the outside. I only touch the inside of the glove as I pull it on my hands, you know, because the cuff is flipped out. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
why is it again I have to wash my hands when I've literally washed him like within, you know, two minutes ago <laughs> and I've only literally touched like the sterile plastic of the of the of the thing itself. And and then you start going down a rabbit hole. The same for re-expansion pulmonary edema. I went down a rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole is, you know, where did this come from? Who thought about it? And I think so often in medicine, the deeper you go down that rabbit hole, the more dissatisfied you are. And the more you end up thinking that somebody's pearl is a cheap plastic kind. It's just a cheap plastic pearl that, you know, doesn't really um, carry any weight. And, and I just feel like that, that's, that's true often. And I guess the comments to that tweet generated so many people had like cheap plastic pearls they were given and they kind of talked through what those pearls were. Um, I guess I've always been interested in these pearls because I guess, I mean, I'm interested in the psychology of, um, you know, as somebody who's, uh, teaches not always formally, but sometimes informally, I guess I, I'm very hesitant to say things that I myself have not, you know, really dug into and verified. I think that so much of my teaching, like when I'm on service is, you know, I ask students like, you know, or ask fellows or residents like what randomized trial or what's the data supporting this? Something that I know really well, you know, so I know I know it. I know I know it well. And so when I ask them about it and then I tell it to them, I, I'm confident that I'm not misleading them. But these other kind of pearls of like, how do you do something or, you know, sort of mnemonics or rules of thumb, um, I'm very uncomfortable passing forward unless I've verified the um, authenticity of, so to speak. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my, my, my tweet was really, uh, was really about that, was about like this inauthentic pearls. Um, and then the reason I thought it was so interesting in the time of COVID is, you know, I really start to see these pearls formed in real life. Um, you know, I'm privy to some discussions where people were like, oh, you know, what do we do with chemotherapy patients, um, who are coming in? They might have COVID, but we don't know it. They're not symptomatic. Should we test them for COVID before we give them chemotherapy? And then of course the answer is, well, if you do a PCR test, you'll have to wait several days and then, well, maybe we should have them come in the week before, do the PCR test and then come get the, the, the treatment. Um, and then somebody else might argue, but, um, uh, you know, then they could develop positivity between cycles. So how often are you going to treat them? And, mm-hmm. and then somebody else might say, well, we want to know they're negative when we treat them with chemotherapy. Then somebody else might argue, but, but why do you want to know they're negative when you treat them with chemotherapy? Well, the virus would be worse if they have gotten chemotherapy, but then you go into, but is there actually any evidence that folks who are getting chemotherapy have worse incidence of the virus or that it's a risk factor? Has it happened? You know, what's the rates of it? Um, is it logical? And then finally, of course, there's, you know, is there any proof that this is of benefit? And you can see that um, something that just starts sort of like an innocuous question, which is like, should we do this test before we do something with best intentions? It just starts as a question. Um, it so easily can get a life of its own and people can come up with all sorts of logic and reasons why that, that is the case. And one can imagine in a very short period of time, a university has set up as a policy that every patient getting chemo has to have a negative COVID PCR three days before. And, and of course, there's a harm to that, which is now you've got to bring in people an extra visit and you got to instrument them. And in fact, potentially there's a risk of nosocomial or iatrogenic sort of injury or spread of the virus. So, you know, are you doing a net good? And anyway, the reason I thought of this was that's how these things are formed. You know, I was like, how did, how did like, how did it even people get this idea that this 1500 cc's 
Um, you know, which I'm not sure I stated yet, but you know, when I look into that, that falls apart really quick. And I gave a link to an article that really goes through some of the history of it and, and shows you why that that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, and, and I guess, I guess it's interesting to me, the psychology that goes into where these, um, pearls get formed. And I think it's probably like an ancient thing, like, you know, for thousands of years, human beings, when faced with uncertainty, things they're fearful of, have formed pearls. And probably in the ancient times, a lot of our myths or mythology, uh, a lot of the sort of heuristics and rules, they were formed under the exact same sort of social dynamics as the the pearls of today, which is, do people need PCR negativity before you administer cytotoxic chemotherapy three days later? You know, I can see that sort of human psychology. And for me, it was sort of unique because in my life, um, you know, I, I, I came after the HIV AIDS epidemic um, and I came, I mean, what I'm trying to say is I don't think there've been many diseases that have sort of originated on my watch um, and COVID has, and, and that's given me sort of this unique insight. Um, but I think your questions go even deeper. So tell me the next part of your question, which is about really credibility and who's credible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and almost, almost in response to just a, one of the pearls that I remember, one, one example before we go into that, um, what you're talking about reminded me of this, this thing you were describing in your cancer talks about the definition of a response rate mm -hmm. or the, the, the calipers, the, mm -hmm. the carpet. Oh, wow, great example. Box. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, I, that was such a, an eye-opening moment because I just kind of took the definition, when if it was in the NCI or some sort of definition based on an, some sort of official website, I was like, okay, I guess my, my me being very oblivious to like this idea of like how definitions are set or standards are made in cancer medicine, I was like, well, I guess that means that must correlate to some sort of benefit for a patient. So I don't know, that's it, like that percentage seems like 30% seems like a reasonable amount of shrinkage or whatever. So that must be why they chose that. Right. So yeah, that's a great, yeah. So, that is, <laughs> that's what they could detect with their crude instruments. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was just, it was, it's kind of like when you go down that rabbit hole and you keep asking, you know, why and why and why, and, and you come to this answer, it's not, I, I don't want to say it's anticlimactic, but it's, but there's some sort of, there's, so, there is actually some sort of kind of, humor in in the sense that it was just the realization that we're all just trying we're doing our best and we're trying to figure it out you know and given the technology at that time or given that thing and it certainly helped that charles martel was a you know yeah. a pioneer in in his uh field so that's why it was very much accepted as a standard um but but i just always think of that example where it's like i'm sure that many things could in medicine could originate to one person starting it this way and therefore they adopt it as a standard and sure there's improvements and but they'll always be credited for like that that one thing i don't know just no that's like, a great example and let me just to give listeners a little context they can read about it of course in chapter two of malignant but you know in oncology we talk about response rates so often and of course we know the response rate by resist 1.1 is a 30 percent shrinkage in the diameter of the tumor um uh and and then the question comes why is it 30 percent and I, like Audrey, I think when I first entered oncology was like, well, that must be for good reason. And I just assumed it must be for good reason. And then finally I went and I like traced the history as far back as I could. I ended up at like a 1976 paper where I learned the origin of that size cutoff. 
and it is um, sobering to say the least. It's based on what, you know, 16 men could feel marbles through foam rubber with calipers. Um, men in the 1970s, they're all men because, of course, that was the gender bias back then, um, could feel marbles through foam rubber. Um, and from that information, from those humble beginnings, these cutoffs that were really operational cutoffs, they were cutoffs designed for an era of feeling marbles through foam rubber, which is supposed to be tumors through skin in an era before CAT scans, that has been codified and passed forward, polished into a plastic pearl. And so that's a great example. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. And then so when people tell you that, um, you know, response, it's a, it's a great surrogate or benefit. We have a drug with a high response rate. Um, and you really start to ask, well, does response predict living longer, living better? And you see those studies are kind of weak. And then you, then you wonder why. And then this is the kind of stuff you find. Um, yeah. And I really think that, that the other podcast I think about is Bedside Rounds, where, you know, Adam Rodman goes into the history real deep. And every time I listen to one of those, I'm like, oh, boy, that's a fascinating tale. Um, yeah. But but yeah, go on what you were going to say about credibility. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess just it's it's one of those things where it's I find that like in this world, a there's just so much uncertainty. It's there there must be some sort of need for for someone to be right you know to have and not not just that it's like that there are facts i, I feel like like how you can only have facts if they're like verified or proven by someone or supported by someone you trust yeah. you know? like, so i guess i i don't know just like this larger conversation of like what does it mean to have credibility um and authority like who who has it now um and how do how do we think about this in a way that's like constructive and not not just like nihilistic, you know, and just being like no one trusts nobody, but but at the same time it's like, is it the most charismatic person in the room that is seems to have the most credibility, or is it someone who's like really articulate but they could be just spewing, you know, nonsense? Right. Um, uh, what about Such people who question. are like you know have prestigious titles yeah. and you know, um and so like that that lends people some sort of credibility and I just feel like. People are so willing to like give, give their, I don't know, like uh, they just want to be able to trust and believe somebody because yes. it's even having to do the work of verifying. That's everything. the issue. Yeah, you know? I think it's because it escaped. Yeah, I, I, so that's so good. So I guess I would say like, I mean, um, uh, maybe to take this in two parts. One, I mean, one part maybe we can think through is like, what are the things that you see that give someone the air of credibility, whether it's true mm -hmm. or not what they're saying? Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what I think you're saying, which is one prestigious title, venerable institution, a new study from Harvard Medical School finds, or, you know, mm -hmm. Dr. So-and-so, the, the such and such professor of medicine at the, at the Stanford Medical School, you know, that sort of title mm -hmm. lends credibility. I think um, charisma lends a great deal of credibility. I mean, people who put things well, who are jovial, and you know, it's less so in maybe um, impersonal situations like Twitter and um, on uh, uh, television. But you know, you're in a dinner party with somebody, and it's often you know charisma that carries the day when you discuss sort of a you know when you're having dinner with a bunch of people and you're discussing a social political issue or something. Charisma in those sort of intimate situations, yeah, I think goes a long way. I think one of the other things that goes into like what we perceive as credibility is um, uh, the, the how many times you hear something, um, how many people are saying the same yeah. thing, and, yes. and yeah, and that's and that to me is like what what I see with oncology and like um, you know I think the industry comes up with some talking points and then they have all these KOL meetings and then they kind of 
I don't know, use money to grease the wheels of getting that idea in everyone's head. And then I go to, um, you know, I go to these, I go to these meetings and, and I, and I see to see so many smart people repeating the same thing. Like, oh, you know, because there was crossover in that trial, that's, that's the reason why there wasn't a survival benefit. And I was like, yeah, but that's also a potentially a reason why a safety signal was, was masked as well. I was like, you know, you're not independently thinking through that idea. That's an idea that somebody passed to you. It's a, it's a plastic pearl you're passing along. Um, and, and I think the industry has been able to turn up the volume, especially in oncology. And then I think the next part of your question is like, you know, do you have to verify everything yourself? And, uh, oh, then the last part of credibility. So the, the, how many people say the thing, I, you know, I also don't like like scientific petitions. One of the things that, you know, I think is kind of trite is, um, there's a petition going around that says, you know, 100 respected scientists believe that universal cloth masks is a good idea. They get a petition or mm -hmm. 700 scientists think we should abandon the P value cutoff of 0.05. And the reason these things cr trouble me is that Come on, th these kind of decisions are not, uh, you know, um, it's not a vote. Science isn't just this vote of what we all think is plausible. I mean, if you really want to persuade people that the evidence is good, you know, you can, nothing stops you from doing like a really good randomized trial. If you really want to persuade people that we should abandon statistical significance, you could, you could do a cluster randomized trial of journals or articles and actually abandon it or not and follow those articles in time to see how many people have reached different conclusions and how they lead to different behavior and, and kind of show that you know one way or the other leads to a better interpretation of studies. You could do pilot studies. I mean, what I want to say is you can't confuse people believing something's true for evidence that something's true. And I don't like those kind of, you know, I, I try not to sign these petitions, although people email me from time to time. Um... So I guess like you're at, at answer, like the, I mean, and then like, what is real credibility? I guess I think that more and more as I get older and do this, I like, I, I try to verify things myself. Um, I try to hear what people are saying, um, think about it fairly, try to be in a place that's dispassionate. Um, and I just give you one example of like, I don't know, a claim that's been made, you know, there's that zero prevalence preprint from Santa Clara that's getting like a lot of news coverage. And it seems like there are some significant problems and issues with that. And I think those should be investigated. You know, I, I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, want to brush that under the rug. I think that should be investigated. But one of the claims that was tossed out on Twitter, uh, that's, I thought very provocative was that the authors sort of intentionally produced a lousy study so that they could accomplish a policy goal for political purpose. And the policy goal is to lift lockdowns. And so I mean, I'd heard this kind of claim being floated in a number of streams that directed at me. And so then I was just like, okay, that's kind of a bold claim, not just the usual, somebody did a lousy study, which is the, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday kind of thing, but that they had sort of a, a, a sort of, you know, bad agenda, and then they started to do this. So then I thought to myself, you know, if I, how would you evaluate such a claim that somebody's like did a study so bad because they wanted to shift the tide of sort of policy and intentionally? And I guess, well, you know, I don't know how to do a study at all, but one way would be, what if you took every study that ever looked at this question and plotted it out and looked to see where their value fell? And if their value really fell as an extreme one end or the other, then I think you've got sort of prima facie a case that they're trying to influence what people think because they're pulling the field in one way or the other. Um, and so I did that. Um, and what I found was that this study is, and you know, people can debate, but 
somebody argued with me, you know, I said it was in the middle, but they said it's not in the middle. I was like, look, I, 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 I mean, we have to agree that like when you look at something, this is like roughly in the middle. I would say it's like at the 40th percentile of studies. And I guess to me, what that means is, I guess I'm not, I, I'm, I question, I put a question mark that a study that gives a result at the 40th percentile could shift the direction of a ship um, because it is in the middle. If you want to shift the direction the ship's pointing, I think you have to have the most highest ex- number or the lowest number, right? To really pull something. Um, if you shoot something in the middle, how are you steering the ship? I, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. And and the reason I did that exercise was like, I mean, I think it speaks to your credibility, which is like, you know, I wanted to I wanted to evaluate in my own mind the claim. Is it plausible that these people had an ulterior motive? And I can't get in their mind. But one, I think, intermediate is if you had an ulterior motive, I would think you would produce a very skewed estimate. So ergo, is this estimate skewed? So like, that's kind of like what I wanted to say was I wanted to like do some work on my end to evaluate something that people have been telling me. Um, and the same is true for, you know, anything from like, you know, uh, should you pull off more fluid than 1500 cc's? It takes work. You got to dig through all these boring references to find. Um, but where were you going? You had something else, I think, another part of the question that I'm ignoring. Yeah, so I think that's a very, yeah, it's a really interesting point where it's like, I think, A, it does take, I don't think people realize how much of a, how much effort or how much skill goes into do like practicing verification or just practicing like researching on your own. Right. Uh, right. I always think that's a really interesting point where it's like, at least I, you know, I'm, I may never, you know, you may, I think there's an acceptance that you may never get to the full truth. Right. right. Because it's like right. tension, right? what is um, really the kind of the point of debate. Um, but there, but then there, that's why. And in those moments where it's like, when you can't reach that absolute truth, like an intermediate or some sort of target will have to do. Right. Um, but then also just like transitioning off to this point where it's like talking about controversy and talking right. about um, this idea of, especially when in times of uncertainty, nothing like I think everyone is still vying for, or I think con- not control, maybe control of, of what is truth or what, what should, what should happen or what should we be doing moving forward. Um, and I guess I wanted to kind of bring up this kind of uh, counterpoint of um when people weaponize credibility, um, mm-hmm. how do we stop? Like, I think I think it is really important to question credibility and always check your sources and do the verification. But I also think that it must be done in a way that is uh, with the intention of of again arriving at the truth and right. not using it as a way to silence people, especially um, you know women, people of color, people who uh, I don't know maybe just are in a minority of opinion, um, but an opinion that is truly debatable, um, you know, truly, like truly is like, we don't know how to move forward. And even though it seems more popular to do this, like, I, I don't know. I think, I think that, is it enough to say that a fact is not credible though? Um, you know, like when we're, when we're talking about attacking credibility. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, how do you do it? I think appropriately attacking credibility yeah. or attacking a view. And I think, I mean, it also reminds me of the recent thing where, you know, I saw that, um, uh, you know, the Santa Clara authors, they put out this paper and obviously, um, it, it, uh, it comes out with this idea that COVID's the, the number of people who have COVID who die of COVID is a lower fraction than what people think. But, you know, when you plot it all out, I actually think it's, it's more or less where a bunch of studies are falling, but, 
um, you know, people went after them hard. And, um, you know, I do think that they're like at times comments do go a little bit below the belt. And one was, um, one of the authors in, in a video was wearing a white suit and somebody was like, look at him wearing his stupid white suit. And I was like, come on, man, you're like, you're giving the guy, you're busting the guy for wearing the white suit. And I was like, I was like, you really don't realize that you're, you're like crossing a line. Like when you're like, oh, and he's got his goddamn white suit on. Look at this smug, this smug guy in his white suit. And I was like, oh my God, come on. Let's just keep it on this, keep it on this clean study. Um, yeah. But, you know, your, your point about, the types of people who are silenced, I think, is a point that I, I didn't do a good job of making in some of the things I've been saying about this, but is a point that I I really want to to make. And maybe I will go back on Twitter and say this, which is um, when you look at some fields like in medicine, neurosurgery and cardiology um, or orthopedic surgery, the percent of women going into those fields is very, very, very poor. I think in neuro, in cardiology, it's like 15, 16% in neurosurgery, it's like, I don't know, close to that, less than that. In ortho, it's like 6%. Mm -hmm. And I think, I'm not sure that anything explains it. Like, it's not the hours, it's not the variability in hours, it's not, I mean, because there are women pursuing surgical fields that have a lot of hours, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't know it's been fully studied, but one hypothesis, I think, is that some of these fields have a bro culture, a culture where it is mostly men, uh, mostly engaging at a certain level of sort of discourse or dialogue. And it can be like very hostile to people who don't want to engage at that same level of, I don't know, combativeness or assholeness, if that's the appropriate term. Um, and, you know, when in this in this whole Santa Clara thing, you know, where Jeff Flyer and I wrote this op-ed where we say like, you know, gotta be careful to like, argue with his points, but don't demonize the people because we want, right now there's a lot of uncertainty. We want to hear different ideas. We want to know what people are thinking. We want people coming to the table. Um, you know, people are like, well, they don't appear to be silenced. And, you know, well, you know, if they, um, uh, if they're willing to go into the arena and say things that have implications, they got to be ready to get pounded. And I was like, well, you know, you might not actually get these three people to stop talking. They might keep talking. It's the people who watch that, who are stop, who are not going to talk in the first place. And that might be, I don't know that this is the case, but that might disproportionately be women. It might disproportionately be people from underrepresented minority groups. It might disproportionately be people who are younger, who feel vulnerable. They don't want to offer an opinion in a climate where anyone who offers an opinion outside of sort of a canonical norm is going to get stomped on. And it might be, and that might also be the same thing, like why ortho and neurosurgery have like such a low fraction of women going in. Not the hours, it's not the work. It might just be that you're creating a climate where it's not very welcoming to other yeah. people because of the way in which you know you're treating each other. And I mean, I mean, people may not know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about you know. I had people tell me stories of like um, this dude, this resident didn't show up to work. So he like drove over to drove over to his house, knocked on his door and grabbed him by his collar and said, you think you're sick? Get get your, get yourself to work. You know, that kind of like level of like, I mean, just totally crossing boundaries and like not respecting people and and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's like that's a hostile kind of culture to work in. Um, so anyway, I mean, to your point. Uh, you know, I mean, I I always see this claim where it's like, you know, somebody's like, oh, prove to me someone's been silenced. I was like, that's a very difficult thing. I don't know what you're looking for here. Uh, you, you prove to me somebody didn't speak up when they wanted to speak up. I was like, well, that would be a sort of hard thing to show. I'm not sure it leaves a mark. Um, but, you know, I think you're asking the right question, which is, I mean, 
like when you attack somebody's credibility, I mean, I think I, I mean, I don't like to attack like their credibility as a person. I like to attack like all the points they're saying. And I think mm-hmm. you got to keep it focused on that. Um, yeah. And then the last thought I'd fare you is like, it's so funny that I was just telling somebody that like, I feel so strange that, you know, I'm somebody who likes to call it as I see it, you know, and I'm very blunt about that. And, um, but even in like the last five years on Twitter, it's really, I think, devolved into just like total chaos, just total people looking to get angry about everything you say and just constantly, ang- you know, just ready, to, like they want to be angry and they want to attack, attack, attack. And there's so many more people than before. So I think it's getting to be like a very nasty place, as somebody would call it. Yeah, it, uh, yeah there, I had yeah, a lot of responses, cause mm-hmm. lots of good um, especially this this idea of um, culture and, and psychological safety is kind of what the thing I keep thinking of of, of being able. I, I wish I could do a study on how many times people have wanted to say something but haven't. I um, yeah right. I know like I mean like I, I'm trying to think of like hmm, like but but I do believe at the heart that that is where so many missed conversations go or opportunities for growth and conversation but it's but it's like if the culture is not permissive in any workplace culture is not permissive to do so it's i mean those are the ones that are more resistant to change i think but but they then they but i believe that they believe that change is some sort of loss of, of some sort of way of being but yeah so that's one i think secondly i think your point i, I know you've made this a couple times but i think it is so true is um i think we have to start thinking beyond like uh, beyond like just the, the two people engaged in the debate, but to realize that there's, there's a community and not even a stage because I don't want it to be performative, but, right. but, it, but it is it a stage. People are watching. Of a, it is yeah. kind of the same words. It is, it is the hearts and minds of people who are undecided yeah. or people. Um, and I, I think it was, uh, someone had this tweet about like, uh, there was a nature paper about anti-vaccination sentiments um, and just kind of like looking at Facebook groups or something about how, um, even though pro-vaccination, there's higher numbers in the pro-vaccination group, the rate of anti-vaccination yeah. ideas are spreading faster. Spreading faster. Yeah. There's more. There's more heterogeneity, and so they're just kind of, kind of coming from all sides, almost. You know, and at some point, like I think in like 20, 10 years, they might overtake pro-vaccination, just because the even just the very clear message of vaccines save lives and vaccines are good, which is true. Uh, but but also it's it it doesn't seem to have provoke the same sort of sentiment or community or whatnot and so there's just a bunch of undecided people in the middle and you kind of saw this graph of like I don't know all these people yeah. like and I was but like, on that I wonder if you share my view I mean I guess when I look at this vaccine stuff I think that's a great example where it's like um, it's getting so hostile I mean like I mean what do I mean by that like. Look, I'm a doctor. I'm getting all my vaccines left, right, and center. I'm giving all these vaccines. Okay, come on. I'm 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 in the vaccine camp. Like you know, va- vaccines are good. Uh, generally, uh, uh, you know, are are there a vaccine here or there that we can debate the evidence and the try? Okay, yeah, of course. But you know, uh, uh, the the childhood immunization series, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, we're not we're not we're not. We're, okay, that's where we start. Um, you got some people out there for whatever reason. This has become something that, um, they're gonna not like. And, and maybe it's just a way to express frustration about a bunch of different things. Maybe autism and, and the lack of social services for that is part of the frustration. I, I'm not sure. Maybe there's all sorts of other sort of social things that this has become a conduit for expressing frustration, which is, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want my kids to do this, that kind of thing. Um, and maybe some of it is just being ill-informed and some of it is like bad actors like Robert F. Kennedy or whatever, the, that Kennedy who's always saying 
things that are wrong. I'm going to watch my words. Um, uh, maybe some of it's that too. Okay. But then like, I, I just see people on Twitter, like who make a career out of like being pro vaccine, uh, and by career, my career, make a pastime. I just talk about it all the time. And it just gets like more and more hostile. Like, you know, anyone who disagrees is just stupid and dumb and blah, blah. And I think that's like, I'm like, how, how are you trying to win this debate? Like, um, or, you know, and, and then like every once in a while, somebody says something bad and it's just like attack. And there's like so many people attacking, uh, on both sides. And I'm like, this is just getting so polarized. It's like, it, I almost think it would be better if no doctor and nobody talked about it or tweeted about it. And they just like silently just did some legislation that says you can't go to kindergarten unless you get these shots uh, or, you know, you can't go to grade six. And then, and then just, you know, started to like, just have some education campaigns and like, like, let's, let's just take this down a notch. Um, I don't know how you feel about it. And like, you know, you're, 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 you often are when groups of people, like students who are very passionate about this issue. Do you right. think it's getting yeah. too heated or I don't know, maybe it's just me. I, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll be honest. I've, I've not seen, I mean, I think I've mostly seen the hostility from anti-vaccination. Oh yeah, um, they're hostile too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. but it's like I don't I don't doubt that that there could also be this. I think there's a sense of frustration. Yes, you know on I mean? both sides. Yeah, on both sides. On both sides. Yeah. Um, but also it's like the frustration that like oh like by communicating, it's almost like this the fallacy like if we communicated and we had this excellent campaign, why isn't it working or why haven't we convinced people or why does it feel like we're not winning the information war, you know? Yes, um, yes. And, and so like, there's a frustration on on that side when it's like, like I almost think I, to me, it, this, this is like the, the fallacy of science communication is that I don't think you can just present the facts even in a clear, like that. that's the baseline. That's like the, like the standard prerequisite for like communicating science is that it's true and that it is easy to understand. Yeah. But it, like you're, but, but I think your point of view of like just understanding the psychology of people right now, of socially on a larger scale, of yeah. like why why are people who don't believe or are hesitant about it? What what is their concern? Like to me, it's just like this is. I, I'm extrapolating, and I have really no way to test this hypothesis. But it's more just I feel like this is like one aspect of agency, you know, and in a like. I just I think there's so many things that can be stripped away, especially for Americans who are very proud and, and like they love their yeah. freedoms and what. But it's it's this idea, this is very obvious, clear in their face uh, issue that feels like um, parents want to have exert control over yeah their kids. You know, like it's like it's such a personal issue of like what your kids do and who like how you raise them and and what choices you make for them on yeah. their behalf. Right and it's funny because it's like it's not like self I feel like maybe people also don't want to get vaccinations for themselves, and but I think I think it's like this idea that they're exerting yeah. control against authority on their own mm -hmm. children. It's like a place yeah. they can, and you know, yeah. I, to me, but it's interesting to me because America once was you know a place with very very high vaccination rates. So it's I don't think right. it's like speaks to that American independence streak. I wonder if it speaks to the mm -hmm. fact that, um, you know, all of the things going on in society, the gaps between income inequality gaps, wealth inequality gaps, increasingly politically polarized culture. Um, and in, in the in the middle of all that, um, this is a place where agency can be exerted, where you can yeah. really, yeah, take control. Um, and, 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 and there's some sort of deep, deep wounds that this is kind of covering. Um, yeah. But I, 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 but I don't know that I mean, you know, 
I don't know the path to to fixing it all, um, but mm -hmm. I I do see people going crazy on it on uh, uh, especially the anti-vaxxers, but also even a few people who are pro-vaccine just going crazy yeah. about it, and I'm not sure that's helping. Um, yeah. I'm 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 not sure it's a thing where like you know it's like um I'm not sure one day you're gonna get a somebody you can give a, a, like a paper to somebody if you're really in the anti-vax camp is there is there any piece of paper I could give you and that you read and you're like, oh, I was wrong. I don't think that exists. I don't think that exists. That does not exist. It's not, it's not, in a, it's not a rational decision, emotion. I don't know. Or yeah, go on. What were you going to say? I, I think that's what, what, I, what I'm saying is that to be honest, it's like, it's almost like, I think we have to be careful that we're not being elitist, right? It's like, I taught you and now you've changed, you know what I mean? Like that's, yes, that's right. the narrative of, of that sort of a thing. It's like, to you know, again, I don't agree with their decision of like, the outcome of people like has not giving vaccines to their kids. But it's like to them, this is like they're fighting for their dignity. You know what I mean? And I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to just because I we can understand it doesn't mean I like enable or encourage that sort of thinking. If that makes sense, like right. I feel like there's a right. line that should be on. It's right. like I think we have to under we, like it may be uncomfortable for us to like sit in that particular way of thinking if we don't personally believe that that is healthy or safe but it's but i think that again this this has to be an emotional appeal at some at some point right because it's like what what landmark study like could i give you that would be like suddenly i see the light like especially to someone who maybe doesn't have a background in right. like reading literature or it's like what's the difference between this piece this pdf and this pdf the colors like yeah. the, the font size you know i mean it's it's at some point it's not it's not what you give right. some, but it's like how much you are receiving input from from that community of any any community that you don't agree with I yeah guess. maybe covid right. will be the no that's a, that was well put but maybe covid will be the thing that can heal it because um so. yeah really when, when um you know when um the vac covid vaccine will come out maybe it will and, and you know i think there's a lot of people wondering what's going to be how many people going to want to take it but maybe the way to frame it is um to say uh, you know, the, those times in, in life where, you know, you roll up your sleeve and you do something for your country. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of you out there, you don't want to do it, but it's, you got to just do it for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and maybe, I don't know, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting challenge, but I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I don't know, crushing one more rogue anti-vax tweet on Twitter, as many um, MD, PhD, fellowship trained scientists think is a worthwhile pursuit. I just don't think it's it's not moving the needle on this issue. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So this was a good discussion. Um, yeah, you know, our time is winding down. I guess the the overall themes were fake pearls. How are they made? Credibility, um, the need to do more independent work and I think this key issue of um, who is being silenced um, and and what is kind of the culture that's being created, um, I think is an important question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are yeah. always good questions. What are, what are your, I'll give you the closing, you're the guest of honor. So what, yeah, what are your closing thoughts? <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I think I, I would say, I think those are all the main points that you talked about. But uh, I think ultimately it's it's how do we question credibility and into a productive, meaningful conversation. I think always the end goal is like, do we feel like we've arrived at a point? And I think like you said, this needle, you know, it's, it's, it's funny cause you're saying moving the needle, but I truly think it, it is like a three dimensional sort yeah. of yeah. needle of yeah. like all these different parts. And, and 
I don't know. I, I think, like you said, I think we're all in stages of grief right now. Um, you know, whether and it manifests in very different ways for some people. And, um, and, and so, like you said, the chaos and, and the anger and the, you know, sometimes honestly vitriol or like just even the, the need to feel snarky, yeah. you know, or like, I, I mean, I, no one's immune from like that feeling of like, we're, we're all human. We're all human. Right. right. And, and yeah. I think the more we can kind of accept that, um, and, and embrace that, like, you know, it's like, you can get it out of your system, but, but I think ultimately understanding that we're navigating this, this uncertain time, um, with a lot of different ideas and how do you bring those ideas to the table? A, you can't set, like, you need to encourage that, which is to say like in the psychological safety component of like, if, uh, and, and also I think being brave enough to like tweet it out, which is always why, you know, I just appreciate like, <laughs> you, you'll always like tweet something and I'm like, okay, like that, yeah, that's a good point. And then, you know, like it's, I think it fosters discussions or at least makes people think, and that's important. Um, and then also just the idea of, yeah, I, I, I don't know, just when, 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 when one idea becomes too dominant without like self reflection, it's just like, how do we rein it in, in a way that's not, not like we're trying to, again, knock people down. Right. But, right. But trying to, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. How, how do we strip, like, if that isn't a good idea, can we strip? It only becomes strengthened if you can refute the counterpoints. Right. Know? Well said. Another another brilliant questions <laughs> from Audrey Tran. Now I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and I think listeners will enjoy it a great deal. Uh, thank you, thank you, Audrey, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. Nice to see you too. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Kareen Tawaji. Dr. Tawaji is a third-year hematology-oncology fellow at the Oshner Medical Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. She is the first of what I hope to be a theme here on this podcast of friends of the show and fellows joining us for a Journal Club episode. Dr. Tawaji, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're a, you're a friend of the show, is that fair to say? It is. We actually, I was listening to the podcast starting in my first year of fellowship and then you had a friends of the show session at ASCO That's right. uh, two years ago in Chicago. And so we met then and I've continued to listen to the podcast ever since. And it definitely has helped me uh, with many of my own journal clubs in the last two years. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, we really appreciate your interest and you're like the, um, the perfect person because, you know, like, I, I mean, we, we I guess I hope that the podcast is resonant for, for fellows and that it's of some use for people going through these articles. Um, you're here to talk about the I Am Brave 150 study, atezolizumab plus bevacizumab in unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. And it joins the other IM studies, the Imbrave, Empower, Impassion. Power for lung, obviously, obviously, passion for breast cancer, and brave for hepatocellular. That's very obvious to me. Um, obviously. <laughs> obviously, obviously. But you just did this in a journal club. Is that fair to say? I did. I presented this for all the fellows at our own journal club here two weeks ago. So we have some interesting points of discussion, I think. Okay, well, good. I look forward to it. I only read this this morning. I was supposed to have read it a long time ago. And I only I didn't find as many things as I like to find, but I found a couple of points. So let's let's let you take it away. Um, why don't you, um, I guess, start by just maybe giving the listeners some background about um, hepatocellular carcinoma, and maybe this drug combination or why they did this study, maybe some of the background and methods. Absolutely. So 
So we know that historically hepatocellular carcinoma has very poor outcomes, especially when it's deemed unresectable, mm-hmm. and multiple trials have tried to improve those outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, often competing is the liver function of patients uh, when they get to the stage where they need systemic therapy. So currently we have we had two category one agents that are approved in the frontline setting for unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. We had serafinib based on the New England Journal study in 2008, which had an OS of 10.7 months as compared to placebo uh, with 7.9 months. This and is the famous combatinib. Joseph Yove yes. Sharp trial. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So and that's then, one. Yeah. Uh, and then a few years after that, we had the approval of lumvatinib based on a non-inferiority trial. Um, so now that's also approved in the first-line setting. Um, and there's been a lot of other trials, um, phase one and two, looking at immunotherapy and atezolizumab and bevacizumab, which are studied in this phase three trial, have both been studied as monotherapy with response rate ranging in the 13 to 17% range. I see. Um, and so this trial, the I am brave is the first trial that has led to a new FDA approval as of May yeah. for this combination of this VEGF monoclonal antibody, bevacizumab, and then the PDL1 inhibitor, atezolizumab. Yeah. I guess it's interesting to me. I mean, you, that's a really great summary, I think, of this space, which is that, you know, serafinib came along, not a terrific drug, hazard ratio, something like 0.7, survival from 8 to 11 months. But in the decade after that, Joseph Yove paper, nothing beat it. I mean, we tried so many different other drugs. And then finally, lenvantinib eked out a non-inferiority, which, you know, I think I discussed on this podcast in one episode. I hate that trial because the margin is so big and the benefit was already so modest to begin with. So you really wonder if you're bumping up against placebo on the back end. But this is the first trial that comes along that supposedly surpasses serafinib. So it is a noteworthy study and it got approved. So that Mm -hmm. is, that's where it falls. What about, um, um, maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about who they studied and, and how they did it. Absolutely. So they, the inclusion criteria for this study were patients over the age of 18 with locally advanced metastatic or unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. They had to have had no prior systemic therapy and measurable disease as defined by RESIS 1.1. So mm-hmm. biopsy was not mandated in the study. Um, all of the patients were child QA mm-hmm. and all had to have an ECOG of zero or one. Nice. And the exclusion criteria were obviously child Q, B, and C, co-infection with hepatitis B or C, as well as untreated or incompletely treated varices. So all of the patients actually had to have a screening EGD within six months of trial enrollment. I see. And um, I guess I'll, I'll save your co- your editorial comments for a little bit later, but I bet you have some thoughts on that. Okay, so that I mean, I think that's, that's what I took away from it. It's, uh, um, you know, a classic, classic frontline study focusing on child's PUA, as we like to, as we like yes. to focus on the good old child's PUA. I guess we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, unless you want to talk about it now. Well, I think, you know, you bring up a good point. Yeah. Um, in terms of the current approvals, really, we only have nivolumab that has been approved for the B7 patients. And this creates a, a clinical disconnect because oftentimes when we see these patients, they're not necessarily at ECOG of zero, and right. they're certainly not child QA. You know, I so. spent some time trying to, um, one of the few points that I had was I tried to figure out, 
you know, of of a hundred people that would walk into my clinic with de novo unresectable HCC, how many people are Charles Pua? And I went down this rabbit hole of looking at all these old publications that sought to validate Child's Pew score. One of the things I, <laughs> I kept seeing consistently was that people feel like Child's Pew is actually not the best predictor of survival for HCC. You know, it's a better cerotic pr- survival. Yeah. Um, and no, that they're, absolutely. Yeah, and there are alternative scores like um, Barcelona um, and and um, this click score um, that are better. But, but my best est- estimate was, you know, at least 50% of people are Child's Pew B or C. And and probably that's even more because there's a referral bias in all these papers that healthier people are more likely to be seen. And so when you start talking about Charles mm-hmm. Pugh A, and in this paper, I think they drew a distinction between A5 and A6. And you talked about mm-hmm. B7, which is the better B. Um, mm-hmm. But when you start talking about A5, it's mostly A5. These are people whose liver function is pristine otherwise. Right. And I don't know how, I mean, I don't see that too often in, in the VA clinic that I was working at. I wonder how often you feel right. that you see it. Yeah. No, I think um, polling the oncologists here when I presented this study, I think everyone, you know, feels that they, for the majority, see child QB. And oftentimes when the people are referred from the local regional um, Yeah, after they get beat up by all that local regional stuff. Right, right. right. They're they're no longer uh, candidates for systemic therapy, unfortunately. Yeah. I think that that's what I think many of us have found, and 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 I think we'll talk about whether or not that has implications for the trial. But I think it does. Um, okay. Um, anything else we need to know in background, or or should we jump to results? What do you think? You might have more um, stuff. So just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I just wanted to note, um, obviously, that the pharmaceutical company Genentech Laroche sponsored the trial, provided the trial drugs, collaborated with the steering committee on the collection, analysis, and interpretation of the data, including editorial assistance. Um, and my favorite thing. I know your feelings about that, having yeah. listened to your podcast for some time. Yeah, my favorite thing. <laughs> nothing, nothing better than having editorial assistance. I see it says uh, we thank blah 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 from Block Company, San Francisco, for providing editorial assistance with earlier versions of the manuscript. Oh, thank you. Okay, good to note. Um, so, so the primary endpoints for this study were overall survival and progression-free survival, and then they had. Secondary endpoints, including response rate, duration of response rate, time to deterioration of quality of life, physical functioning and role functioning, as well as safety and side effect profiles. Yeah. And the one thing I noticed that was interesting was the way they allocated the alpha. So their 0.05, they put 0.048 on the OS and 0.002 on the the PFS. So like, in other words, even though those were both primary endpoints, they bet heavily that this was going to be OS positive and just a little bit of alpha for the the PFS. But uh, that doesn't change anything because it it turned out to be positive by both metrics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, I think we can jump into results. Okay, um, let's do it. So there were 501 patients enrolled at 111 sites in 17 countries between March 15, 2019 and January 30th, 2019. Mm. Uh, the median age of patients was 64 to 66 years old, and 40% of patients were enrolled in Asia, excluding Japan. I see. Um, in the supplemental report, the breakdown of race was one-third white patients half Asian, and then there were only 2% patients that were black. Mm-hmm. In terms of the performance status, 60% had an ECOG of zero, and the rest were ECOG of one. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned, they were all child QA5 and A6. Yeah. Um, some other interesting um, characteristics 
one third of patients had a clinical diagnosis of HCC. So I'm assuming those were the patients that did not require a biopsy. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of patients had extra hepatic spread and half of patients had prior local therapy. Mm. Um, and then in terms of PDL1 expression, it was available for 36% of all patients. And in the combination group, 64% had positive expression, which they defined as TC or IC more than 1%. I see. Okay. That's fair. I guess, I mean, I guess, you know, it's one of those cancers where you don't really fault people for not biopsy proving it just because on imaging, it's so characteristically HCC and you right. you know, when you see it. Yeah. But I guess it's probably telling that the reason they only have PD-1 status on a fraction is that so many people are not getting biopsy proven. Right. Yeah. HCC. Right. Okay. That's good. What else do you got? Um, so I think we can jump to the endpoints. Okay. Um, so... Uh, the combination group of atezolizumab and bevacizumab resulted in a 42% reduction in the risk of death compared with serafinib mm-hmm. with a hazard ratio of 0.58 compared with serafinib. And there was also a 41% reduction in the risk of disease progression or death uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.59 as compared to serafinib. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the progression-free survival, the difference was 6.8 months in the combination group versus 4.3 months in the serafinib group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of the overall response rate, it was 27.3% in the combination group versus 11.9% in the serafinib group. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a bit surprising for some people because historically serafinib has had lower response rates yeah. than what is described in this study. That's true. Yeah. Um, and then another interesting finding was that 5.5% of patients in the combination group had a complete response. And then in terms of the quality of life metrics, they so they had all the patients do a survey questionnaire on these quality of life metrics uh, on day one of every cycle. And they found that the combination delayed the deterioration of patient reported quality of life uh, outcomes physical functioning, and role functioning. Yeah. And I think they use something like a 10-point decline on the EORTC scale as, as as declining quality of life. But yeah, I mean, I think you're summing it up really accurately, which is it's a win for OS. It's a win for PFS, although quite modest, 6.8 versus mm-hmm. 4 point something. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a win for quality of life. So it's a win-win-win. What's not to like? Yes. What's not to like? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll get into some criticism and limitations uh, in a second. Um, I also just wanted to note in the supplemental report, um, in terms of patients that went on to second-line therapy, in the combination group, 18.5% of patients went on to second-line therapy, and it looked like most of them got TKIs. And in the serafinib group, 41.2% went on to second-line therapy with majority of receiving immunotherapy, as we would expect. Yeah. Um, And in terms of adverse events, um, any grade adverse event occurred in 99% of patients. About half of the patients in both trial arms had a grade 3 or 4 events. As expected, the most common grade 3 or 4 event was hypertension in both groups. Um, and in the combination group, there were 15.5% of patients that had to discontinue the combination regimen due to, due to side effects. I see. Yeah. Um, and then I think of note, the grade five events in both groups were about 5%. Mm-hmm. So in the combination group, there were 15 patients 
that died. Um, and then they list all of the reasons for the death. I don't think that, you know, all the deaths necessarily can be directly correlated to the treatment. I mean, right. some of the causes of death listed were sepsis, cardiac arrest, respiratory distress. Right. So, but there was um, a good percent of GI hemorrhage, which obviously is of concern with the yes, bevacizumab. Yes. Okay. So there's some grade five AEs. They both, you know, serafinib is not known to be a walk in the park, but they both have sort of frequent rates of any grade hypertension, fatigue, proteinuria, as well as grade four and three events. Um, discontinuation rates were, I think, not um, not terrible. But again, this is a highly select cohort. And we, everything we know about serafinib is the discontinuation rates in the real world are mm -hmm. really high. Um, right. Okay. Uh, so, and then I yeah. think of note also dose modifications were permitted with serafinib. So it was the starting dose was the 400 milligrams twice a day, um, but dose modifications were permitted. And then in the atezolizumab, bevacizumab, it was a standard dose of um, one day every three weeks for both drugs. I see. Okay. And that's, you know, that's reasonable. Serafinib has a terrible dose reduction schema that penalizes it. You know, I've talked about on this podcast a couple of times, you know, it goes from 400 BID to 400 milligrams daily to 400 milligrams every other day, which are precipitous drops. And, you know, when you could get in between that. So the first dose reduction is a 50% dose reduction. And that's why many of us have been critical in some of these trials. They start at the same dose, but then serafinib has more steep dose reduction. So it's effectively on a lower effective dose. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's good to note. Um, okay. So what were the thoughts that came up in Journal Club? You know, what do you guys think about the paper? What do you all think? So I think, you know, as we mentioned previously, obviously the fact that only child QA with a performance status of zero to one, which are almost never the patients that we see walking into our clinics, um, does create the question of can you use this off-label right. and the patients that don't exactly fit the trial parameters um, whether, you know, we would get EGDs on all these patients. I think the consensus yeah. is most clinicians would get an EGD, yeah. especially if there are symptoms of portal hypertension yeah. to make sure that there aren't any varices, right. um, which might lead to an increased bleeding risk. Yeah. Um, I think that obviously we know that these drugs are very expensive. So I was looking at the cost of one dose of atezolizumab for the 1200 milligram um, dosing is about $10,000. And for a 60 kilogram patient to get the bevacizumab 15 milligrams per kilogram, it's about um, $6,000. I see. Um, yeah. So one dose would be about $16,000. Again, serafinib is also very expensive. I know, unfortunately. I yeah. Looking this up, it was about $20,000 for a one month supply at the 400 milligram twice a day. Dose. That's terrible. Um, but we know that globally, a lot of places are still using Fulfox because really these drugs are unaffordable right of the 170 um, countries they did it in i wonder how many countries yeah. it's actually going to be affordable in right right exactly um so i think that there definitely needs to be more studies looking at decompensated patients however it's hard to probably compare to serafinib when that trial was only looking at the child qa patients to start with yeah i think they had two percent of b in child's view b in that uh, original joseph u of a paper in sharp but yeah it was ex almost exclusively all the trials have been exclusively child's pua and that's been a real sort of as you point out a big question mark for generalizability and we know doctors are going to generalize the question is whether or not mm -hmm. they're justified in those generalizations yeah mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And I think another interesting point of discussion that came up were this fear of anti-drug antibodies. Uh So there was a paper in clinical cancer research that described these anti-drug antibodies with all the immune checkpoint inhibitors. And atizolizumab was described as the one with the highest incidence of these anti-drug antibodies. But in some studies, it correlated to clinical efficacy, and in some, it didn't in bladder, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, and breast cancer. So I think more research needs to be done in this area to identify whether this does come into play, um, but it does look like it had been most reported with atezolizumab as compared to the other. That's interesting. I guess one uh, one irony is that in this example, we do have phase three trials for Nevo and Pembro. They both failed, and Atezo Mm -hmm. is the winner, but it's Atezo-Bev. And I guess, you know, I mean... One, you know, question that comes is, obviously, is the BEV needed? Is a Tezo going to win on its own or does it need the BEV? Um, and I guess we'll probably never know the answer to that question. And so they'll likely be given just as protocol was to give them both together. Mm-hmm. Any other? Um, I found a couple things I'll tell you about in a second. But any other things you want to mention? I mean, I think, you know, just the breakdown of patients enrolled in terms of race. Oh, yeah. Um, What did you find? I didn't didn't look at that. Is it mostly Caucasian? 2% 2 black and then a third Caucasian, half Asian. I think historically some of the patients that have the viral um, induced liver disease tend to have better responses than the North American population that might have non-viral induced cirrhosis. Yeah, that's a so. good point because I guess um, it looked like it was split between hep A, hep B, and non-hepatitis um, um, HCC, like alcohol use typically. And it looked like in the forest plot in – somewhere I read it, in not maybe not the paper but the supplement, that um, – Overall survival was clearly beneficial in viral-related hepatocellular carcinoma, but it wasn't so clear for the non-viral HCC. It looked, right. yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. yeah, it was Hep B, Hep C, and non-viral. And non-viral, yeah. Um, and yeah. and so your point is that, yeah, th- by going to Asia, of course, you're going to enrich. Of course, you're going to enrich in Hep B. Um, but the question is, in the U.S. population, we have more and more um, uh, liver cancer as a sequela of perhaps non-viral processes, um, are you going to get the same benefit? And there's a question mark, I think, whether or not this drug, this mm-hmm. combination works in that. Oh, absolutely. One thing I found that I thought was interesting was it's an open-label study, so it wasn't double-blind. Yes. And so right. they didn't give placebo infusion, so everybody knows what the patients are getting. And I can imagine you're right. very happy if you get the new shiny Atezobev, and you might be annoyed right. if you get the old-fashioned right. serafinib. Right. And then I noticed that the duration of treatment was seven months for atezobev and 2.7 months for serafinib. So I said, okay, two months for serafinib. I, I definitely know that the real world utilization of serafinib has a very short duration of treatment because people don't like that medicine. But mm-hmm. this is a clinical trial enriching for Child's Pew A and mostly A5, ECOG zero, you know, clinical mm-hmm. trial where if you read the, uh, you know, the inclusion criteria, they also say like you can't even have hypertension to 150. You know, there are all these kind of unique um, anti-angiogenesis kind of IC included. So it struck out to me that I'm like, okay, this is a really selected cohort. Duration of treatment is 2.9 months. So I was like, let me check the other trials. So I pulled the lenvantinib non-inferiority study. And in that lenvantinib study, the duration of treatment for lenvantinib was 5.7 months, but it was 3.7 months for serafinib. 
So it was longer for Serafinib than in uh, Imbrave 150 by month. And then I pulled the original SHARP study from 2008. And I said, what is the duration of treatment? The median duration of treatment was, and then one thing I should add is, in Brave, you're allowed to give serafinib post-progression. That was an option to investigators. The duration of treatment in the 2008 paper, a decade earlier, was 5.3 months in serafinib compared to four months in placebo. So how is this paper, the duration of treatment is less for serafinib in this study than, you know, then it then it's less than half of what it was 10 years ago um, and right. less than placebo. And I right. guess my question, though I cannot prove it, um, my question is, is someone taking a dive on the control arm is my question. Like if you know that this, you know, in the original Sharp study, the, the company that comes to you is saying, we want to get serafinib approved, push the dose of the drug, keep the dose high, keep it going post-progression. Mm-hmm. Let's give it the best shot at improving OS and we win the OS benefit. And in this trial, you know, a decade later, they come to you and they say, well, we've got this new immunotherapy combination. Do what you want with serafinib. Their doctors are giving it for half the duration, even though the patients are probably as healthy or probably healthier than they were a decade ago. And uh, people always say that, well, the serafinib arm, they lived, you know, median survival was like 13 months and it was 11 mm-hmm. months many years, a decade ago. But if they live 13 months with two months of serafinib, if you gave them five months of serafinib, maybe they live 17, 18 months and some of that benefit would be eroded. Um, that was just a thought I had. I mean, you know, it's obviously you can't prove it. You can't prove it. But um, it's one of the things that a placebo control would have helped because doctors would not, you know, a double placebo control might have made doctors more reluctant to discontinue things a little bit prematurely, push post progression. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I know they they did mention in the article that they designed it this way to spare patients from two placebo infusions yes. and that as a result, they had blinded review of the imaging to minimize bias. But I think you definitely bring up some good points that. Yeah, um, I want to thank um, so and so of such and such corporation, San Francisco, for that clever play on words to spare them <laughs> the infusions. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it does do that. It spares them placebo infusion, but it also makes it abundantly clear who's getting the drug. And so, right. if there is a psychological bias against serafinib, which there well could be, um, you know, and I guess I would say that it would be one thing if the duration of treatment was 5.5 months, but 2.7 months, every time there's a new trial, the duration of treatment of serafinib gets shorter and shorter. It was five months, then it went to 3.7 months and lenvantinib was non-inferior. Now it's two months and this is superior. In the future, it's going to be half a month and the drug will be a game changer. It'll, you know, if you don't give serafinib at all. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But other than that, I mean, I think you and I have come to the same conclusions. How generalizable is this? Um, how, you know, it's clearly maybe, you know, you might lean that way for the fittest of the fit people. But then again, you probably dog the control arm a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Is it really... You know, the real sad part here is that this kind of approval is probably not going to transform outcomes for this disease because the reality is most people with this disease have also have hepatic dysfunction and we don't have really great drugs for hepatic dysfunction. Right. And I think that, you know, in the future, trying to catch those patients that are still getting liver-directed therapy sooner, and there's a lot of trials ongoing looking at, you know, local therapy with systemic therapy concurrently or sequentially. I think there'll be a lot more studies um, coming out on in those areas right. uh, to see if maybe that does improve outcomes. Right. So overall, what's your what was your takeaway from the conference? What did people say? 
They're going to use it selectively, um, is my guess. But you know, what are their what are their impressions? I think impressions overall, people are going to use it um, up to a B seven, even though that would be considered off label in oh, theory. Boy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, most people would get a screening EGD okay. if there are any signs of portal hypertension. And in terms of what to use second line, if you do use this in the first line setting. Obviously, a TKI, but the question was as to which one would you use? Yeah, I know. Now you have uh, no data for that guy, that decision. Um, Regorafenib, Cabo, I mean, none of these got this in the front line. Um, okay, I guess I would say, uh, <laughs> I would say, would I use it in an A5 patient? Yeah. A6? Question mark. B7? Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, um, <laughs> um, that's just my gut. And then I would say that if you did a trial where people push the serafinib hard, um, the benefit would get smaller. Would it evaporate? Question mark is my thought. Um, but um, I guess one question that will be is if any of the responses are durable, that might change people's tune, is if we find that in three years, five year follow-up, there's some fraction that is, you know, the, the tail on the curve settles somewhere. I know mm -hmm. in, in these immunotherapy drugs, we're always hoping, but half the time we're disappointed. Right. Um, and I mean, there were yeah. five and a half percent that had a complete response yeah. in the combination arms. So we'll see where they are in the see future. What happens yeah. With, yeah. With those patients. Yeah. It's been, um, yeah, it's been definitely sort of a mix across tumor types. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great summary of the study. Um, and a very interesting study. Um, liver cancer trials, um, they all suffer from, we're only really studying the tip of the iceberg of people with disease that come to our clinics. And so, you know, it would be great someday to just have trials dedicated in child's pub, for instance, to try right. to figure out, yeah, what's actually the best strategy. No, absolutely. I just wanted to also mention that there are four other phase three trials in Jeez. that are ongoing looking at immunotherapy in unresectable HCC. So I think that you know, this regimen, we'll see, it might be also Eclipsed. fighting with other yeah. um, regimens. So there's the LEAP002 trial, Lumbatinib and Pembro oh, versus yeah. Lumbatinib. The Cosmic312 trial, Cabozantinib with Atezolizumab versus Serafinib. Oh, boy. There's I also <laughs> the Checkmate90W, which is Nevo-Ipi versus Serafinib or Lumbatinib. Okay. And then finally, the Himalaya study, which is Dervalumab and Trimalumumab. Uh, versus Duralumab alone versus Serafinib. Oh, so. wow. Good. So everyone wants to beat on Serafinib. Well, good news is one of those studies will be positive by chance alone. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> I bet that the duration of treatment of Serafinib is going to be like 2.1 months. We got to go down for those studies. Mm -hmm. It's got to be less. Um, but you're right. Maybe one of those will eke out a win and then we'll have to think about it. And then it'll be, um, I wonder which is the most costly. My guess is probably the most costly is the, the one with the Cabo in it. What was that? A Tezo Cabo? Yeah, it says Ocabo versus Serapinib. Yeah, that's probably the most costly. Cosmic 312. Cosmic. So we'll I, like, I like that title. Cosmic. All right, so that's good. This, there's a lot of interest in this space. There's been no shortage of randomized trials in HCC, a very tough disease. Um, all right, that's terrific. So, yeah, thanks for doing this. I thought it was a very interesting um, discussion. It was a great presentation. Thank you, Dr. Tawaji. Thank you for coming on. I was like, really great presentation. Very interesting discussion. Um, and thanks for doing the uh, first visiting fellow journal club on plenary session. Oh, I'm very honored to have been the first visiting fellow. So <laughs> I hope to see more of these kind of uh, podcasts in the future. Yeah. And uh, you should put it on your CV.
so that someday it says visiting fellow. <laughs> I, I hope uh, I hope people take it seriously, uh, but you never know. But yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, hopefully we get there's a couple people who emailed me some other trials. Um, so we hopefully have a few segments coming out. But thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. Hopefully we'll see if we meet at ASCO again next year. I happens. know if it's in person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.